listener, you are turned in to Beginnings, a podcast of book readings written and read by Cecily Riley. Episode 2, Painting Dreams. Nobody noticed the man on the bench. It was a sunny afternoon in October 2019, and the mourners were busy mourning. He didn't mind. He was used to being ignored. Some of the bereaved might have even thought he was a drifter. His clothes were clean, but his old trench coat was shabby, not as old as his leather painting satchel that looked downright scruffy, like his hair, like the teeth behind his perpetually sad smile. What would Millie have had to say about his appearance? Not much nowadays, as she lay in the grave at his feet. He really wasn't sure what she thought, somewhere up there in her heaven, about how he looked. He had been coming here for about six months, every day without fail, but he was starting to forget her. Not the general idea of her, nor the love he had had for her, nor the love he had felt she had had for him, but specific details like that. He remembered her voice, and how she always smiled when chastising him, as though nothing really mattered. That's what he would have wanted to put on her gravestone, because that's the truest thing about her character, and the mystery that stayed with him to this day. She lived and laughed as if nothing mattered, not really. She was good, she was kind, she was caring. When they were alone at dinner, and he complained about the time she wasted on those people at the nursing home, or the flowers she gave away in her flower shop next to Brompton Cemetery to those too poor to pay for them, she would just smile and say, it doesn't matter anyway. That's also what she said when they had sat side by side in the NHS doctor's office and he had given her the cancer diagnosis. It doesn't matter anyway, she had smiled at the young and uneasy doctor. It matters to me he had shouted, when they had gotten back to their Wimbledon apartment. Then he had started to cry. She had consoled him, sitting together on the couch. She was the one dying, she was the one that was ill, and she was the one consoling him. A part of him felt a dreadful shame, but he couldn't help himself. He felt ashamed for having taken almost forty years of her life when she could have been with someone who deserved her. He almost said as much, sitting with his head on her shoulder on the couch, but he knew she didn't like that sort of talk. She would get a little angry, the most she ever got, when he played himself down. He wanted and needed to stay calm and nurturing, the way she had always been, on that couch, on that fateful afternoon, and every day since they met. Their path had crossed not far from where he was sitting, alone in the autumn sun. He wasn't particularly fond of cemeteries, not back then anyway. Now he loved them, the peace, the quiet, the best neighbors, as the gravedigger always said when they met. He enjoyed the coming and going of funerals and crows, cats and mice, rats, and, in the winter evenings, as the gravedigger told him, even foxes. He had, at last, because she had died and he couldn't keep away from her, learned to enjoy watching the seasons. 
He had only been coming to this bench for about six months, but he liked it very much. The leaves changing color, the noises getting louder as the temperature rose, the skirts, even in a cemetery, getting shorter, the various chirping of birds, certain cats who grew first accustomed, then friendly with him. Oddly, in the middle of all those mostly overgrown tombstones, he felt surrounded with life, more than he had ever done. Little by little he understood his wife better and his old life less. The first had been about joy, color, and the present moment. The latter had been about order, discipline, and the calculation for the foreseeable outcome. It is a physicist's and an astronomer's job to care about such things. They must understand to be able to explain them to their students. Why had he cared so much? He had loved a beautiful equation and preferred those students who handed in exams to feeling the width and breadth of such beauty. Now he reveled in the harmony around him. Again, it had started with one of Millie's mad ideas. About six months before he retired from his teaching position, she had discussed and he had listened to the various occupations he could pursue. By a process of elimination, the least costly and the most likable activity they had selected watercolors. It's a long and honorable hobby, Mildred had argued when he still had been reluctant. She knew how he liked all things British and had voted Tory until she had talked him out of it. He loved traditions. She had found out early enough. But watercolors? Really? He wasn't an artist, he had argued. She had laughed, of course. She had gone secretly to the school where he taught and told the headmaster to get him a nice watercolor set. The young and energetic man had been at a loss to find a retirement gift for a man he understood so little. He had been quite relieved when Millie had shown up with her suggestion that sounded a lot like a request. So there it was, in the old leather satchel she had found in a flea market, the watercolor set with a block of beautifully thick painting paper and a small resealable pot of water. It sat beside him like a trusted friend. It had been with him from the very first visit to her grave. He had seen people on TV and actors on stage, when Millie had managed to drag him out of the house, that shrieked and wailed, tore at their hair, and beat the ground with their fists when their loved ones died. He had wanted to do that. He had felt their pain that day, the first day after the burial. He just didn't know how. His body had never expressed such passions. Even when he had first met Mildred, and they were in love, they had made love, but his feelings had been buried deep, nigh unfeelable, like a fire of which one can only hear the threatening low roar. So he had sat down for the first time on that bench and had silently cried for most of the afternoon. That feeling had long since gone back into its cave as Archibald tried to remember how he had let it go so far six months ago. He then resumed the daily ritual of mumbling the news and his opinions on them to Millie's tombstone. 
He had had his breakfast with the Times and chose the topics he would tell her about. Sometimes he even got to discuss them with the living if a visitor happened to sit on his bench with him. The second group of mourners of the day had gone by him without so much as a look. He had watched them as he watched all the grief-stricken people who walked the paths near his bench. His gaze, two deep-set blue eyes, under a relatively unkempt mane, seemed to make most people uncomfortable and stay away. Those who did manage to take a seat on his bench, he either hadn't seen coming, or he had found them endearing. His smile mellowed his features and made his eyes look warm and understanding. Millie had taught him that trick, not willingly, of course. He had grown tired of hurting her with a look. He had learned to soften his stare and turn his face into a welcome sign. That's how Millie had described it. That's how those Brompton Cemetery visitors reacted when they got it. They felt so welcomed they dared to sit down. The morning was drawing to a close. The birds were getting quiet. The light was changing. He could feel a slight tucking from his stomach. The air was vibrant with nature's creatures greedily enjoying the last of the mellow sunshine. No wonder he didn't realize something was off. He was but a man, and took things at face value. His instincts were untrained, and his life had not made it necessary for him to learn to read the signs. So, to him, the quiet was not the silence before the storm, but a lull in the traffic outside the cemetery's gate. Instinct or no, the metal clang of a wheelchair being pushed with difficulty down the cemetery path roused Archie from his reverie. He watched the ugly, stuck nurse push the heavy chair down the sandy path, her unflattering medical shoes sinking in the puddles. Everything about her was beige. The shoes, the thick stockings, the coat, the scarf over her beige curls. Then he frowned at the frustrated youth sitting in that chair the way others sat in the electric chair. The teenager winced with every bump the wheelchair hit and berated the old woman at regular intervals. In spite of his handicap, he wore the customary rebel regalia, hard rock band t-shirt, black disheveled hair, pierced nose, lip and ear, chain clinking on his black combats and feet stuck tightly in black Doc Martin's high boots. Archie had spent his entire professional life teaching young people just like that one. He never could shed light as to why they felt they all had to dress like that. Maybe that specimen wasn't just like the ones he had had in his physics and astronomy class. Firstly, the pathetic duo reeked of money. That was an employee and not a family member pushing that chair. The chair was expensive, so was the nurse's purse. Secondly, his students, for all their teenage rebellion, had been walking on two legs, even if very slowly, as if perpetually bored. Lastly, this kid differed from all the ones he had ever taught, or met for that matter, because he stared straight at him, his brown eyes rimmed with black, spewing hatred. Archie squirmed on his bench, 
sitting up a little, wondering why in the world that boy would be that angry at him. He was quite certain he had never seen him before. He was too young to have been in one of his classes before he retired. When Archibald saw that that poor nurse steered the chair into the cobbled-stoned path leading to his bench, he didn't know which was stronger, fear or curiosity. He wasn't really afraid, but he felt some trepidation to be the goal of what was evidently a complicated journey. He watched quite motionless, as the woman practically heaved the chair over every single stone while the teenager never looked away from him. The old man felt so ill at ease that he couldn't help but smile, not knowing what to make of the situation and very, very slow onslaught. As they were about two feet away, Archie could hear the nurse wheezing. The kid didn't bat an eyelid. He seemed to have become oblivious to the shake and rattle around him. Archie could see that his disability was incredibly frustrating to him. His knuckles were white as he gripped the wheelchair's rests, as if he wanted to propel himself out and into Archie's lap. The old man didn't doubt what those claw-like fingers would have done to him if he had been able to. But why? As they were moments away from speaking, Archie knew that all fear had vanished. And all he wanted to know was why that boy came all this way that day to visit him. Finally, the chair came to a halt, its metal frame banging ever so slightly against Archie's bench. He looked up at the nurse. She looked frightened. She secured the brakes with habitual speed and precise gestures and walked away quickly. The last look she gave Archie as she hurried out of earshot on the gravel path had seemed apologetic. He couldn't be sure whether it was for bumping into his bench or abandoning him with what was clearly a deranged demon. The boy looked like he was fuming, so much so that he didn't know how to begin. To Archie, he seemed intelligent, behind his gothic attire and glowering eyes. He just couldn't wait to find out what he could have possibly done to attract such hostility from someone he had never met and whose circles he decidedly did not frequent. The vampiric paraplegic was clearly struggling with the situation, also because Archie had decided to say nothing until it became absolutely necessary to speak. With a motion of despair, the youth extracted a newspaper from the side pocket of his chair and tossed it dramatically on the bench, in the empty space between them. Archie looked down and smiled. The newspaper showed the very bench he was sitting on, with one of his watercolors on it. The journalist had insisted on wanting to take his picture, but he had refused. Since she had been rather pretty, he had looked for a compromise and had suggested photographing the watercolor instead. Before Archie could revisit the memory any further, the boy asked, with that dreadful tone, hesitating between anger and sadness, coming across a simply whining. Is that you? It is one of mine, yes. Archibald answered peacefully, looking up at the boy, still mystified as to how this article had brought on such outrage. That's your painting stuff? he asked curtly. Yes, Archie said, lifting and opening the satchel, showing him its contents. But he clearly wasn't interested. He still wasn't sure 
how to say what he had come to say. Who do you think you are? He finally blurted out. What? Archie said, struggling not to smile. You say you paint people's dreams. What about those without dreams? What about them? What do you paint for them? In the hurrying realization of the pain in the boy's question, Archie didn't feel like smiling at all anymore. He grew a little pale, too. So that's what that boy reproached him, to cater to those with hopes and dreams. He was so taken aback by the question that he didn't know what to say. He could tell by the teenager's expression that no condescending platitude would do. The uneasy silence lasting far longer than he wanted, he just said, What do you want me to do? What? You're obviously angry because you don't have a dream I could paint, so I'm asking you. What do you want me to do? How can I make it better? Make it better? The boy spat, Archie regretting his poor choice of words. This isn't a scraped knee. This is permanent, you know. No bloody painting is going to change that. I know. S sometimes it helps to. To what? The silly mourners you paint for. They get to walk home. What about me? What could your paintings possibly give me? I'm afraid it's all I have. It's those paintings. That's why I come here every day. Something in the simple, honest and humble tone Archie had used struck a chord because his vis-a-vis -vis progressively stopped fuming. The teenager searched the old man's face for some connection, some understanding. But why? Where else would I go? You could travel the world. Without her, Archie said, pointing towards Millie's gravestone. What's the point? But you're not dead. No, Archie smiled. Not yet. You could, if only for the sake of those who can't. But you can. Nowadays, but the technology... I know. The boy cut him off. I'm sorry, Archie said after another embarrassing silence. I'm not very good at this sort of thing. You're doing fine. Don't worry about it. I don't know why I came here. I just needed to vent, I guess. I'm glad you could vent. But you're sure you don't want the painting? Archie said, handing him the one he had painted earlier that morning. It's someone's dream? The teenager asked, taking the thick aquarelle paper with cautious fingertips, almost as white as the paper. Yes, Archie said, staring at the boy and the painting he had put down on his lap. That's how it works. And if I want to keep it, I have to tell you my dream so you can paint it? Exactly, you got it, the former teacher said, encouraging his pupil. What if I don't have one? The youth looked up at him with such despair in his eyes, it took all the old man's strength not to look away. It can't be that bad, Archie said awkwardly, having swallowed hard before finding his voice. He knew his words were terribly unhelpful. But there must be something you dream about, something you hope for. You mean, other than the nerve regeneration research, to get as much funding as SpaceX? Yeah, Archie replied, relieved to share some humor with the boy. If it did make enough progress to help you, what would you do with your legs? I suppose I would be able to dance at my wedding. That's a nice one. Really? You could paint that? I can try, but you don't get to see it. You have yours already.
Archie said, pointing to the paper resting on the black trousers and lifeless legs. What is it? Where is it? I don't get to tell you. You put into the picture the hopes and dreams you want there. A moment's peace finally found its way to that corner of the cemetery. The nurse sat on another bench and was reading the Daily Mail. A few birds were fighting over territory in the branches nearby. The big city of London, all around them, never seemed further away. Okay, the boy said as if he had come to an important decision. I'll take it. Do you want your newspaper back? Archie said, pointing at the Guardian, London section, still lying on the bench. No, thank you. Knowing you, I'm sure you didn't even read it when it came out, right? The boy smiled smugly before shouting, Nurse! She came hopping down the path, professionally undid the brakes and pulled the chair backwards. The boy looked at the old man with an unrepenting smile as a way of a goodbye. Archie watched them leave, the boy holding his new dream down in his lap, the nurse struggling with the heavy chair on the gravel. He watched those two strange characters vanish out of his life and go back to where they had mysteriously escaped from. Soon, only the cemetery's greenery, the bird's song and the wind rustling the leaves in the trees would surround him. He sighed, realizing just how draining, not to mention bizarre, that encounter had been. With relaxation slowly taking hold of his body once more, he noticed his watch telling him that it was close to noon. As per usual, he got up and was about to take off on his meandering route to the closest sandwich store when his gaze fell on the newspaper. It lay on the bench like the pivotal clue in a murder investigation. It almost seemed accusatory somehow. A few months old, it had been kept with care. Archie imagined he could see the boy reading and re-reading the article, letting his anger and frustration fester and grow. He leaned forward and picked up the evidence and clamped it under his arm. He had decided that since fate had intervened, he would read the article over lunch and paint the boy's dream in the afternoon light on the bench. As he walked the sandy, gravely and paved paths, Crisscrossing the cemetery as he went, he remembered the circumstances of the interview. She had been a lovely, mean and lean brunette, not at all his type. She had first sat down on his bench because a bird had relieved itself on her stylish black coat. Swearing and protesting the unbearable truth, she had berated everyone, the bird, the cemetery keepers, God, the deceased she had come to bury. Then she had noticed Archie, who had silently been staring at this contemporary apparition in his old world. Nobody noticed the old man on the bench. She was no exception. Maybe she never would have, even sitting next to him, if he hadn't handed her a handkerchief. A habit his wife had managed to pass on, among the hundred other things she had improved in his life. The journalist had looked up, her large brown eyes staring at him, somewhere between disbelief and dismay. Then she had remembered to be polite. Thank you, she offered in that charming purr that probably got her a lot of answered. You're welcome, Archie had responded, duly honored to be thus acknowledged. I am sorry about my language, she said, wiping the black coat with the white paper tissue, holding it tightly in her refined, dark-skinned hand.
It's just that I love this coat. I understand. Thank you. Did you love him as much? Archie asked, by way of conversation, pointing to the funeral party, coffin included, slowly moving away from them. No, she laughed. Maybe I should have. Oh, and it's a her, actually. I see. You wish you had loved her more? Oh, no, it's nothing like that. I'm engaged to be married to a wonderful young man. I just wondered whether I should have been a better friend when she was alive. I'm the same. I wonder whether I should have been a better husband to my wife. She looked at him with a growing grin, in sharp contrast with her tight bun and stark morning attire. That got really personal really quickly, didn't it? She laughed. Did it? Yeah, we barely even met, and you know one of my deepest, darkest secrets. And you know one of mine. We're even. Are we playing a game? No, I didn't mean it like that. I meant that we hold a secret over each other now. Oh, you're too much, she laughed out loud. What is your name? Archibald Mason. I am Imelda Taylor, she said, extending a hand he shook. And what are you doing here, Mr. Mason? Please call me Archie. Everyone else does. Well, there aren't many calling me anymore, but those who do, they call me Archie. Very well, Archie. What do you do? She said, her public school education exuding from every word she uttered. I am retired now. Used to teach physics, mathematics, and astronomy. What about you? I'm a journalist. I collect people's stories. It's a bit of a life's work. And what are you doing here? Did your wife die recently? 